0: You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com.
1: Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to episode 34 of the Surf Simply Podcast. We're recording on Wednesday the 10th of August 2016. My name's Harry Knight and with me today is Will Forster. Hello everybody. Asher King. Hey guys. And for his annual cameo Sam Wackerley. Hello everybody good to be back. Indeed we managed to lure you back from the Middle East.
2: Yeah yeah it's great uh, to be back and be a teaching surf again and uh, to take part in the podcast. I always listen to you guys on the way back from the uh, wave pool for my weekly fix of surf so it's nice to uh, to be able to hear my own voice again. We, have, uh, yes.
3: we have minus one rue add one Sam. Yes. Have no. to have the balance of British accents too. <laughs> My American one. <laughs> it's got to be a three-to-one ratio. Uh, although you were being teased this week about speaking some in some technical
2: surf terms in an English
3: accent. I know. Oh, you I guys are wearing off on me. Yeah. <laughs> I got all red in the face. And one of the guests this week uh, said to me, like, are you, you say some things a little bit English. I was like, no, 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 I don't. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, for those of you that, that are new to the show, uh, Sam Sam's one of our old coaches from Surf Simply. He used to work with us a couple of years ago, and you're now... At teacher of economics and business is that right yes that's that's After right yeah the English yep. school in Abu Dhabi and every now and then we dangle the carrot of good waves and good company well yes. at least good waves
0: it's a very big carrot very juicy
1: Sam comes over and, and plays with us and does a little bit of teaching and uh, we normally try and get him on the podcast
2: yeah it's been great it's been great always great to come back and teach surfing it's um teaching uh, economics or surfing or surf economics, as we're going to feature a little bit later in the podcast is something I really enjoy so uh I, I always can't wait to get back. Um, this year in particular has had a, uh, a lot of nature. I've, cu- I've come back to Costa Rica for summers, many summers, it's a, it's a, and, and this year we've had, I've had an above average number of sightings, uh, be it I've seen beautiful uh, turtles mating as I paddled past. Uh, I've seen uh, flying fish. I've seen uh, some, uh, I think they're called, they're like a, a spoonbill, that are pink. I think they're called rose spoonbills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this morning's uh, was capped by seeing what I think's pronounced an agotee. which An-a-goatee. is a goatee. an and An agotee, yeah, it's not a beard.
3: Yeah, was what I was saying, not the, and not <laughs> the agouti you're currently wearing yeah, in your face because I can't shave because <laughs> of the
2: stitches. Um, but um, it, it looks like a, um, a sort of a huge guinea pig, um, and um, uh, it's ginger, so it's quite striking when I saw
1: it in the bush. Mm. What have you guys been up to then over the last couple of weeks?
3: We have a, we have a bit of a bit of a battered and bruised. Yeah. Group of podcasters today. I think we're all uh, harboring a, uh, an injury or two at the moment. We're yep. all a little bit dinged.
2: I have a stiff upper lip, not due to my Englishness, but just the fact I have uh, four stitches in a, uh, in a uh, fin chop. One, yeah. of the, one of the dangers of a quad setup. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's more probability
1: <laughs> uh, higher probability of a thing it. it's actually, it's healing very nicely, I can't see it from the other side yeah. of the room and I have ridden a thruster ever since yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just there in case yeah.
3: <laughs> How, uh, what, what have you managed to do to yourself Ash? The last big swall we had I, uh, I took a lip to my back uh, trying to pull out of the doggy door and uh, I, my knee crunched in and it, it didn't really hurt right away but it's been progressively hurting more and more and more and I have a Indonesia trip coming up in three weeks so I'm gonna to try to rapidly get this knee better because I'm gonna be out there for uh you yeah, like 42
0: days what have you been up to Will? I have been watching a little bit of Stranger Things on Netflix ah. if anyone likes the 80s and electro pop and sci-fi watch it it's amazing it's amazing yeah. yeah a lot of
1: the guests have been recommending it to me you guys have both been enjoying it yeah yeah I finished the show in about one day <laughs> I watched the first episode and then I just... That was also a byproduct of you having an injured knee. <laughs> yeah, I just sat down and watched eight episodes. Yeah, that is just... the
0: definition of a binge. Yeah, that's but a binge. Yeah, yeah. And you're
1: lining up a trip to
0: Tokyo. I'm going to Tokyo, yeah, on the back end of our Indonesia trip. I, um, if anyone can recommend anything in Tokyo, that'd be great. On my list so far is the karaoke bar that Bill Murray goes in in the film Lost in Translation. That's, that's a short list so no, far. Yeah. and, F- and p- A
1: very short list for a man that, as far as I know, hates karaoke. I loathe <laughs> karaoke, yeah. It's part of my fear. Uh, be,
0: be a more fun individual. When I in Rome. Yes. Exactly. I'm going to go and sing <laughs> a David it, Bowie song. Um, but yeah, a uh, friend of mine recommended the Tsukiji Fish Market. You can go at like 4am and watch them unload all the... That you know, the like car-sized tunas and things off uh-huh. the boats, and they you can be shown cool. around and get some sushi there, and yeah, it's meant to be a really cool like cultural experience.
2: It's, it's worth investigating. Tokyo has more Michelin-star restaurants than any other city on the planet, and one in particular is a little kiosk in a subway, oh right. r- r- uh, run for for, a cent- for centuries by the same family, and uh, and I believe the food and sushi there is mind-blowing. All oh
1: right,
3: right. You know, a little kiosk. I a like that. Yeah. yeah. That is
1: quite random. You don't think of, of a Michelin star being awarded to street food, do I you? I think it's the only street food place that has a star. So, yeah. Actually, on the subject of wildlife, we were, we were pulled up by a listener last week for uh, failing to, to talk about the crocodile attack up in Tamarindo that happened. Actually, I, to be fair to us, it, it only happened uh, about a day before we recorded the last episode. The last episode then took me over a week to actually edit and, and put out, so um, that's why we didn't cover it, but... It's also that it's not that uncommon, unfortunately. If, if, if you type sort of crocodile attack Tamarindo in, into Google, you'll get hits from the local newspaper for every yeah. single year for the last five. So, um, yeah, did you, did you guys... That yeah, it,
3: was a, it was a pretty uh, gruesome video and pictures that went along with that story. They Yeah, very unfortunate. A lot of the times when you see the, the link on Facebook, that's like, ah, oh, warning, graphic images, and so you're like, ah, oh, this can't be that bad. Those can't were that bad.
1: Yeah, it was a little bit unpleasant. So yes, an American uh, surfer was, was paddling, to be fair, not in, in the ocean, but was paddling across the river to get to a different beach, and uh, got attacked by the crocodile, monster. <laughs> managed to fight his way out. and I guess
2: you might be listening, so certainly we wish him well I hope he gets well soon, but it's extremely rare for that to happen in Costa Rica, I think, in terms of attacking a, a human. I mean, there's been attacks on dogs, I think, dogs sometimes get taken. Cattle. Cattle. But specifically, the, the crocodiles that see humans as, as, as food tend to be the Nile crocodiles and the saltwater crocodiles of Australia. And
1: it? unfortunately, actually, Costa Rica does have the highest rate of crocodile attacks in Central America, but... I think it's very skewed you've got the most places like round here all the crocodiles get hunted like if the farmers see one and it's getting big or the the local fishermen they start hunting it and they'll kill it and um, the exception to that is is up in Tamarindo and then there's a a really famous bridge near Hakko where people this guy's sitting at the side with a cooler full of chicken offcuts and yeah you can hang off the edge of the bridge and feed the the crocodiles and i I think there's tours that go and do that up in tamarindo as well and that's almost like
2: the the shark cages in cape town exactly yeah it's mm -hmm.
1: it's obviously you know creating a very different vibe as far as the crocodiles are concerned certainly a lot of you know whenever you see that a crocodile's attacked a human it does tend to be in those two two little areas into the news for this episode the big one has to be the olympics the, the announcement last week that, that surfing will be an Olympic sport 2020 in Tokyo. Fantastic, very exciting. Yeah, 2020, here we come. Yep. Yeah, very
2: exciting. Certainly the, all the Surf Simply team are now looking to see if they have any ancestry from landlocked countries. Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm desperately hoping for some uh, sort of Hungarian uh, <laughs> um, great-great-great-grandma so I
1: can fly the flag for that great nation. Um, yeah, <laughs> Asher
3: King representing <laughs> Poland. It's Poland,
2: yeah. In this year's, well, it is
1: it, it is an interesting one. They haven't uh, announced how they're going to do. What I mean, really, how the whole thing's going to work. They've, they've said it's going to be twenty men and twenty women, which seems like a really small number to represent. The world surfing population. Yeah, it's going to be Australia versus America well, versus Brazil. Yeah, it? well, it, it 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 is worth noting that this is uh, although surfing is going to be an, an Olympic sport. There's a change for the Tokyo Games in 2020 that's going to go forward, and each host nation going forwards is going to be able to pick five events to bring in. They're just going in for that one games. Yeah, and they're they're sports that are popular within that country. So I think that we've got surfing, sports, climbing. Uh, which should, which should be really be, cool. Oh, that's going to yeah. be really good to watch. Uh, skateboarding, I think, softball and baseball were one of them. But yeah, they're only going in for this one games, and then whoever gets the twenty twenty four games will uh, will Get have pick their, their choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is interesting because it looks like all of these these sort of five sports that they're bringing in, they're not going to have the f- the full. I, I, I don't know. They're not going to have a full event. They've got quite limited fields, and they they haven't said at all how people are going to qualify so like a showcase so i guess they can set the rules uh, compared to like other sports which will have their federations and have their their yeah, way well that it, they are they okay seem to be places. talking to the the ISA the international surf association about how they're going to run it but which on a separate bit of news the ISA world games are taking mm, place Costa Rica about, right now, about yeah, 30 yeah. miles away yeah. in... No, Hermosa. Not, not the best-looking side. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But it's um, <laughs> yeah, interesting
2: to see the potential. Already there's rumours of uh, Mick Fanning coaching the Australian team. Yeah, I and, saw uh, that it it pretty be, much right away. Yeah. And then maybe Kelly or Taylor Knox is all sort of names linked to the US team. So there's a lot of speculation out there, but it sounds exciting. Oh, I would love a Taylor
1: Knox yeah. coaching the US team. I've been watching Arc a ton lately. Yeah. It's, uh, like yeah. And, and actually, coincidentally... I saw some pictures on Surfline this morning and the the beach that they're going to run the Olympics at was pumping this week.
3: Yeah, I know, 4 years too early. There's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a big typhoon
1: storm coming typhoon through, swell. offshore winds.
2: Yes. Oh, it looked great. I mean, can you imagine the effect on surfing when you go from like sort of synchronized diving now, I mean it's nice. I like it. Tom Daley yeah. got a got a bronze for mm. Britain, but you switch from that to like pumping cyclone surf at the beach, I mean, especially uh, if it's packaged well for oh, the I
3: viewer. I mean, I don't know the exposure surfing is going to get is yeah. is going to be absolutely crazy. And I think I've heard that probably the biggest criticism is that, you know, does surfing really need that exposure? But I, I think it's amazing. I mean, I can just yeah. imagine some kid and you because know, the Olympics has such a big audience, you know, reaches place places that the WSL just simply doesn't reach. Exactly. And some kid in, you know, the West Coast of Africa and, you know, seeing the Olympics and kind of getting that getting the jazz flowing for uh exactly. and that brings us we're going to talk later surfing. about
2: you know the effect of of of, of waves uh absolutely on, on the macro economy of yeah and on
3: local economies
2: yeah. so uh you know it's going to be great for the sport great great for surfing nations um and that's why i would i mean i hope it is a bit more inclusive that it isn't just the the big name surfing countries mm-hmm. it would be nice to see you know a costa rican representative or, you yeah. know a, an english representative uh you know just to, to make it a bit more eclectic and to reflect all the surfing communities that are out there,
0: yeah, know. and and not just a ref- a mirror of that particular uh, like WCT year, you know? yeah, yeah. You know exactly. I mean? So there's a a, dis- a difference. Yeah, so I that, think
1: that would certainly be the risk, wouldn't it? That yeah. it just becomes effectively like another WSL exactly. event, yeah. six star event. Yeah, you know? yeah
3: and I, I think it's really really important that when they are structuring that they make sure that there's kind of systems in place to avoid that. Because I mean, the Olympics is is so cool because it's like, for example, the Olympic swimming is not like the world championship for swimming because you don't need to qualify just purely on times. You qualify for your country. Yeah. For example, there's a there's an Ethiopian swimmer who was, uh, I watched him in the 100 free qualifier the other night. And, I mean, he got absolutely smoked. He was like a pool length behind in the 100 free, but it was just really cool to see him.
1: And there's, then and there's it's always one or two stories every year like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, it's, it's the
2: refugee team, this team, the team without nation as well, isn't there? That's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really uh, yeah in strides, which is, uh, you know, it's we are a family of, of of nations. We're a surfing family, and it would be nice for the Olympics to absolutely. Like
3: yeah. yeah. So I think they have kind of pigeonholed themselves a little bit with that
1: twenty-man format. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the big problem is because they've, th- they've only got one day to run the men and one day to run the women's. And you think yeah. hey, they're going to have to f- fly through those heats yeah, to get it done in, in one day of competition. So I guess it would be difficult for them to bring more than that in. I don't
3: know, with, with skateboarding on the bill, I wonder what uh, facet of skateboarding they're going to pick. That's a pretty uh, round... I believe they're going street and park.
1: They're going to, you know, the, the classic sort of X Games park site and go down that route.
3: Yeah, because, I mean, skateboarding, just like surfing, I mean, yes. it's, it's got vert skating, street skating. There's, like, yeah. tranny, which is all the bowls and stuff. And then, I don't know, it it, it seems like, I don't know, it, it's really tough to
1: just pick one. It'd be like picking one running event. Yeah. Like, wow, well, oh, well, we're going to run the 200-meter. Yeah, that was that was a really interesting point. When they made the announcement that surfing was going into the Olympics, retweeted that, that, you know, since the Olympics is meant to be the pinnacle of, of the sports that are in there, you know, it, it is the most prestigious uh, swimming meet to win it's the most prestigious running meet to, to win you know is surfing going to be able to be represented in that same way and uh, you know especially taking place in the middle of the northern hemisphere summer you know if they, if they get sloppy beach break but I, I, I think surfing is almost the same we don't think of it in that way but it, it, it is very fragmented you know the the skills that are necessary to uh, you know, surf Huntington at the U.S. Open last week. It's totally different to the skill set that's required to surf Chopu. That's going to happen next week. And uh, you know, Philippe Toledo's won the U.S. Open two times in a row, and that's that's no surprise. He is by far and away the best guy in the world yeah. in small small beach breaks. But he's probably not. Let's be honest. He's probably not going to win Chopu next week. Yeah. It's um,
3: interesting you say that because every time I've heard someone talk about the fragmentation of surfing, it's like, oh well. You know, there's stand-up surfing and longboarding, and then there's, mm. you know, guys that surf, you know, links, But even within the most high-performance strokeboarding, yeah. there's still, you know, the the skills necessary to win in Japan. Which, even if it's pumping, it'll still be, you know, beach break conditions are not the same skill set that mm. you'd need to win pipe.
1: Yeah. and
3: So, yeah, I don't know. That, that is a bit interesting. It's
1: interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I think whoever wins, let's be honest, it will showcase the best surfing for those conditions mm-hmm. uh, whatever those conditions may be uh, although it may be a little tough on whoever qualifies coming in from uh, Tahiti yeah yeah <laughs> <True>. <laughs> Um, actually, on the subject of the Olympics, the, the the one thing that did catch my mind. Ru isn't here to back me up on this because this is normally where me and Ru go off on some horrible little rant. Have you noticed all the uh, all the swimmers with their cupping with bruises? Their cupping. On yeah. The yeah,
2: you wouldn't be able to see that with the wetsuit. Nope, you know? so no, they they you do. wouldn't.
1: You wouldn't. For listeners, if you haven't noticed, that a lot of the swimming team, but particularly I think the US swimming team, have um, these big circular bruises all over them, and it's uh, it's a weird bit of pseudoscience called cupping. Uh, it involves bruising the body in the hope that it's going to work. Actually, the, the thing I really like, there's a really, if you want to know more, there's a, a really good article I'll link to in the show notes because I know there's a lot of crossover between swimmers and, and surfers. But what I did like was that, that some of the, the claims, you know, if you, if you go to someone that provides cupping as a, as a service, a lot of the things that they would recommend it for in terms of swimming is you know improving recovery after exercise and increasing blood flow. Which is what's the drug that all the Russians got banned for, and then got let back in? It's mum. Ma- 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 Which it. was promoted for doing the for same doing thing. It, yeah, basically, it was it was promoted for exactly the same thing? And one of the Russian athletes tweeted that all these people that have got cupping bruises should be banned. <laughs> I wonder, even though that
3: cupping is obviously has no health benefits, no scientific proven health benefits. I wonder what the psychological benefits are. Because I mean, yeah. if you're on the blocks, just feeling like ooh. I did my cupping yesterday. I'm, yeah. ooh, exactly. I'm ready to swim this and it, race. And it's very
2: visual as well. So you look across at your opponent and they're covered in cup marks and they've got clearly something that you haven't got. Yeah, exactly. Of psyching the opponent out mm-hmm. before you've even, the heat's even started.
0: Uh, anything else caught you guys' eye in the news, Will? Oh, no surfer on tour has a college degree. I was surprised. Yeah, I saw that article. It, was it um, Ace Bucken that wrote it? Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Considering... Actually, you probably know more on this than I do. Did your university have a surfing team? Mine it did not, it? It did um, not right. but
3: I went to Florida State, which is inland. It, oh, okay. it's, it's actually quite a far away from the yeah. the coast, but there's a ton of colleges that do have surfing teams. Yeah. The NSSA, National Scholastic Surfing Association, has a big collegiate division, which looks like a ton of fun to participate in. I wish that I had <laughs> that when I was in school, but... Yeah. Uh,
0: are there like scholarship programs? Because obviously, with a lot of athletics, no, maybe. it's
3: it's it's kind of below the right. the NCAA. Yeah. it's more of a club activity. But yeah, I could see that no surfers on tour would have a college degree. I mean, it's a shame, but yeah, I mean, you see kids now just drop everything to pursue a surfing career. You know, when they're barely in double digits, you know, they're eleven or twelve years old,
1: it's dropping out of school. I think yeah, I mean, it, it must be quite hard, particularly when you get. You can imagine when a kid's going through just school and you know they' they're getting through to high school, you can probably make it work you know you miss a few days because you've got to go to this contest or that contest, but at that age you're generally competing on a national level mm-hmm. and it's all you know the contests are weekends but once you're you know eighteen nineteen and you've you've gone into the adult division, well you know realistically, what are you competing on you're competing on the w q s and yeah, you've got events that have a week-long window, and they're on the other side of the world. I mean, I would think that fitting in schooling would be there. I, I'm always amazed. Um, regular listeners will know Jessie, our head coach. And she's been knocking away at her degree online mm-hmm. for the last couple of years. And I, I, it blows me away how she manages to fit that in yeah, with, with everything else in her in, in her schedule. But you can imagine, you know, if you were really pushing and really training online, it would be it would be pretty tough
2: so yeah i think if you're a promising athlete in in any
1: sport particularly those sports which
2: command um you know uh, a lot of um income when you're older Mm -hmm. a lot lot of prize money and a lot of sponsorship money be it football soccer basket whatever you you need to commit to that sport uh, at, at an age which would kind of cancel you out of going to college because exactly the opportunity cost of oh no no you know um quicksilver or whatever i won't sign that million dollar contract for five years i'm going to go and yeah. study fine art uh, it's not going to happen is it you know it's no. like because you don't want to miss out on the opportunity to be you know a world star
3: i think uh the idea of going to pursue your college degree or not i think the line is for these services drawn way way earlier it's like i think uh-huh. the problem is these kids dropping out of high school or even middle school because when i was a kid Uh, even just doing local competitions on the East Coast, almost all the kids I was competing against from maybe 13, 14 on were all homeschooled. I was one of the only kids that was actually going to uh, a normal high school, which is great if you're one of those top half of, you know, one of 1% that's going to make it. But for the rest of you, what happens when now you're 22 and you don't have your GED? That that really puts you a bit behind the hate ball. And you can argue that, you know, oh, I'm going to the – School of the world, man. I've been tr- I'm traveling and learning from that, but I mean, you that's that's only going to take you so far. You're really really limiting yourself if you're not going to that uh, kind of
0: actual schooling. Yeah, it's no real plan B. Yeah, yeah. the options are are not you, many. You could do what Mark Richards has done and be a very successful surfer and then get an honorary doctorate from yeah. Newcastle University. Y- you, pretty cool. You, you do doctor. have to be a very good surfer yeah. <laughs> before they start honorary doctor we'll
1: Mark Richards. Doctor Richards. yeah That's name <laughs> <cool. laughs> <laughs> It is a funny way I mean, I I I think. Did you go to university, well? Yes. I yeah. Did. So I think university. I'm the only one of us that, that that didn't go, and and it was partly because I my plan when I was at school was I was going to go into the military before before I um, failed all my exams, and that didn't work out either. <laughs> um, slight hurdle there. Slight yeah. hurdle there. But you know, yeah. but um, you know, I think one of the one of the options is always just to to go back, and and to do you have many mature students in American universities, Ash or because in the UK, it's quite common, you know, you do get a lot of people going Yeah, to absolutely. At, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s and, and doing a college degree. And I, I guess if you're going down that route where you're going to try and make a go as a professional athlete, the, the door's never closed to you to go back mm-hmm. to it. I think the danger that I see a lot is that people don't do that is they come out from be it surfing or be it other sports but they come out from that with you know much less education and actually quite limited life experiences in terms of of jobs Mm -hmm. yeah and then are quite often sort of certainly in the surf industry you know it's all jobs for the boys you know once you retire from the surfing you know Quicksilver move you into the marketing department or Mm -hmm. or somewhere and um, yeah I think that seems to me like the dangerous one yeah, I think if, it's, if, if we, they are dropping
2: out at an early age, that's got to be a real concern because we have a friend of Surf Simply, uh, Jack Phillips, who was mm. a professional surfer in, ter- in terms of uh, surf coaching and, and he um, decided to have a career switch and he's now flying for Norwegian is Air. Is it Norwegian he's flying yeah. for? So oh, he might be flying Ooh. me home at but uh, I, I love September. Norwegian Air. Oh, there you so, there, you know, you can enter industries that are old yeah. age and, and, and qualify and, uh, um, and certain specific
0: industries are very open to that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Just to... Uh, quote Ace Booker in the, uh, the piece he wrote, sort of similar to what you said, really, Harry. He says um, uh, it's a shame about kids who drop out of school to chase the dream and end up five years down the track, disillusioned, unfulfilled, uneducated, unsponsored, and working out in the mines or waiting tables. Yeah. So,
1: you know, maybe it's something that the the sponsors could take a little bit more seriously. Yeah, in terms of if if, if you encourage a kid to drop out of college to, to try and go professional and five years down the line they don't make it yeah you need to be putting programs in that are well like it doesn't even need to be a program but at least you know sit them down for half an hour and and some sort of exit d- strategy you know give, give them an exit strategy don't don't leave this 20 year old that that has been babied you know through the last five years and, and looked after by the the team manager and then just suddenly drop them on their ass Okay, rolling on to the the contests. Then the last time we recorded, Asher was sitting in the corner watching the U.S. Open. I was. Uh, yeah,
3: I like the U.S. Open. Oh, I, uh, hate, I hate on the U.S. Open on previous episodes, but coming from Florida, I don't. I, yeah, I like watching it. That's the, <laughs> that is like the most premium summer Florida conditions ever. If, <laughs> if you saw those conditions in Jacksonville at the pier, yeah, there would be a thousand people out there. So I I, I actually I, I enjoy it. Um, watching Philippe surf those waves is beautiful
1: yeah I think so, so yeah for listeners that didn't catch it Philippe Toledo won the men's contest uh, Tatiana Weston Webb won the women's event and uh, Justin Quintal won the uh, longboard event which I actually was pretty
3: yeah cool about. representing Jacksonville We had a big old uh, watching party at my house drank a ton of beer and watched longboarders very cool but um, I think yeah, we I think were more interested in the longboard event than any group of people in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I enjoy watching the longboard way more, and I think it is, I've said it before, and I think it's a great showcase for longboarding. It's a longboard wave, isn't it? Because, yeah, especially the conditions that they put the longboarders out this year looked so fun. And you see these guys just hopping all over the wave, and then you get somebody out there on a, you know, a Volan 9.6, and, and it can really highlight the kind of the trim and the benefits
1: of a surfboard of that size, which... I, I personally really like watching. But as we said last week, I mean, given we're, what, Huntington Beach to Sanofre is, what, half an hour, 40 Oh, minutes? yeah. I, I'd like watching at Sano 10 like, times out of 10. Exactly. And, and you know, if, if we're calling this the U.S. Open, like, this is, the winner of this is the U.S. Open champion. Do we really want Huntington to decide that when Trestles is half an hour down the road?
3: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would I'd much rather watch it at Trestles, but,
1: yeah. And the Trestles is what, a 6,000 event?
3: Yeah. It's not a 10,000, I don't think. No, it's definitely not a 10,000. It used to be. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a better wave. What a contrast between the Huntington event and the next event, which is yeah. Chopo. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, yeah, so, so yeah, the next event for the men is Chopo, and the next event for the women is actually Trestles. Yeah. Um, although that's not through till uh, September. Yeah, just to wrap that up, the um, because the women's event was a uh, WCT event, uh, Tyler Wright is now... Leading the work, the charge. She's now got the yellow jersey on. Soon to be an auntie as well, I believe. Yes. Ah, oh, um, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations to, congratulations uh, to own Wright. Quite a roller coaster year for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Frank's picks. You won the the fantasy surfer for the, the women's event, and uh, Luis Panda. You are still in the lead overall for the women's event. Now, on the on the other side, this wasn't uh, a QS. This wasn't a CT event, but the Rip Cup at Padang, which then followed holy smokes yeah. that was a contest what a bit of a contrast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this is a one-day specialty event with um, a, a whole bunch of local indonesian guys taking on a, an international field and god i mean i was just glued to it yeah.
2: my only criticism would be that it was only one day i mean i would have liked to have seen that you know contest in a
1: broader format so mm-hmm. i've
2: got several days fix of padang padang because it, it was
1: some But my nice that they were able to pick the eye out the swell and just say, right, we're going on this day. We're going to get a whole day of, you know, you imagine if it had been a three day CT event. Well, by the third day, would it still have been as good? Yeah, true. True. Um, Padang is a fun looking wave.
0: I'll tell you what, it's a scary wave. Let's talk about Mason Ho in that competition. Yep yeah mason ho's
3: stock is rise
0: It's oh yeah. he's rising yeah he's the
3: most fun surfer but the way yeah. that
2: the approach he took to that wave where he comes sort of flying out and then goes straight into a like a, an air with loads of down the line projection yeah. which is like yeah. you, you don't often see that when you see uh see an air and then sort of landed it facing backwards i thought he was going to go and do like some
3: kind of toes to the nose after that <laughs> yes yeah, so fun uh how happy is that Rip Curl executive who decided to throw him a sponsorship deal yeah, yeah. a year or two ago? I mean, they're, I'm, whatever they're paying him is not enough because he is one of the most marketable guys in surfing. He's yeah. just so effortlessly cool. He's cool because he loves surfing so much and he takes all these fun lines. and yeah, I'm, He surf uh, so well as well. Yeah, well nice. I,
1: I love the fact that he's cool because actually he's just a clown, isn't he? I mean, yeah. he's, he's not taking himself seriously in any way, shape or form. He just goes out. He is himself, there's no veneer of, you know, standing there in his shades looking cool for the camera. It's just, he's out there enjoying himself and it, it, it shows. Did, did you guys watch the behind the scenes video that, that where they, I don't know, someone handed him a camcorder and said, wander around the contest. Oh, it's it was brilliant. so fun. Um, what, a, what a great character for us to have.
0: You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast.
1: It's great to be back on the podcast and
2: it's great timing that um, only this last week there's been a, an academic paper published regarding uh, something I'm passionate about which is surfonomics Essentially uh, my passions of surfing and economics combined. So uh, traditionally in economics we have kind of two schools of uh, ideology. We have like freshwater economists out of Chicago and, and saltwater economists out of sort of Princeton, New York based universities. But when we're looking at saltwater economists here we're looking at actually two guys from Oxford, England who are clearly surf crazy academics.
3: I feel like maybe a little bit of pun could be applied to the saltwater (laughs) economists (laughs) uh, talking about surfing a wave of economic growth.
1: Exactly. What is the the actual definition of a saltwater and freshwater economics? Is that just Uh, a different... uh,
2: Yeah, uh, well, you have sort of two um, separate ideologies in in sort of 20th and 21st century economics. uh, And, like, essentially, the Chicago guys, the freshwater guys, believe in non-intervention, the free market. market and uh, whereas the the more uh, uh saltwater based guys out of Princeton of believe more in, in interventionist policy so the the government getting a bit more involved in society beyond creating the framework of property rights and,
3: oh, okay. and no yeah cuz in when i was doing my economic studies uh, it was all very very free market based yes yeah i had very very little exposure
2: to uh, kind of the, the other school Definitely, it's you know, certainly in, in, in my teaching. We, we have a we have a focus on sort of neoclassical mm-hmm. economics, and and we don't talk about Karl Marx much. Has to be said, um, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't tend to be very popular. No, in he America. doesn't. He
3: doesn't pop up <laughs> too much. In, uh,
2: but here we have some really two two interesting uh, characters from uh, Oxford University, which is one of the world's most prestigious economic programs. Um, some of my students get to go and study at Oxford, only, but only the very very best. Um, it's uh, Thomas McGregor and and Samuel Wills and. They're, um, they're part of the development economics um, in, uh, in, in Oxford. So, um, and what they've discovered really through this paper is what a contribution surfing can make to both developed and developing economies. And, and we live in a developing economy here in Costa Rica. And, mm-hmm. and so we're kind of living that experience and uh, we've all seen how dramatically uh, Nusara has changed over the years.
3: Oh, absolutely. I think this, this paper pretty much just hits the Nasara macroeconomics uh, on a, a pretty much to a T. Exactly, exactly. So what
2: we're looking at here, um, a surfing multiplier. So a lot of other studies that have been conducted by Surfers Against Sewage and the Surf Rider Foundation have all been focused about the sort of tourist dollar, what the tourist dollar sort of brings, and, and sort of doing surveys and almost counting up what tourists spend in surfing mm-hmm. towns. And their aim has been to to use this data to protect waves to save waves from other projects such as marinas that equally have you know bring in the tourists Um, but what's significant about the work from mcgregor uh, and wills is they've looked at the spillover effects from surfing or what we call the multiplier in economics which is a Keynesian concept um, which is more of a interventionist kind of view of economics
3: and so the the multiplier effect would be basically how like like a certain injection of cash would have a, a larger reaching scale than just that one transaction, right? So it would be like, uh, it, you know, if I if I got paid a certain wage and then I, I paid you to go stay at your surf camp, how you're going to use that money to pay for, you know, the, the hospitality products and then the food products, and it ends up that it has a, a, a much wider scale than the... Exactly. Uh, initial injection of, of capital right
2: exactly and hence the multiplier terminology because we are multiplying that spending mm-hmm. then. So admittedly some saved some is taxed um some is spent on imports so that leaves the the economy but we're looking at that the the, the, the power of that multiple spending mm-hmm. um, and we see it here in of so as the as people come to surf so you have you need doctors and dentists and you need the supply chain for building and and all this uh, ripples through the economy and creates economic growth.
1: That's presumably quite a hard thing to study, to to get enough data points. How did they go about doing it?
2: Um, So essentially, um, yeah, the the, the multiplier is always hard to forecast. At the moment, there's a lot of debate in the UK over huge infrastructure projects like High Speed 2 and what contribution that will fundamentally make to the UK economy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, these guys were were extremely clever about how they did it, because rather than just count up you know tourist spending surveys they've, they've they've thought a little bit clever about it and what they've done is they've identified surf spots using wannasurf.com which this um, as you may be familiar with is is a website which is a bit like the wikipedia of, of surf spots which is um crowd sourced, isn't it like that's yeah the expression. it's
1: largely sourced, and it's it's sort of like the storm rider guide you can go on there and it's got all the surf spots within a certain area and you can see all of those spots and they're rated for how good the wave is and how consistent it is and whether it's a left or a right a reef or a beach and i think that was
3: a bit of the the big selling point of using wanna surf is that it did have that wave rating it kind of rated it one through five on its quality one obviously being a pretty crummy you know average wave and then and five would be like a what an aggressive yeah i think they a
2: kamikaze i think yeah, the, yeah yeah and then number four is, is the, the
3: world class um so essentially
2: yes yeah, sir so, and, and obviously one of sources has, has a lot of users a lot of people putting there are some spurious just like wikipedia you'll find some waves that are like made up particularly in in the northeast region there's a lot of made-up mm-hmm. waves there so they took this Wanna surf data they, they chopped off all the one stars because their waves are so poor they're not really going to have that much effect on the economy and they sort of and, and they didn't look too much at the five stars because the waves are so dangerous. They only attract a few. Like if you've ever been to Chopu, um, there's, there's there's a very little economic activity there because only a handful of surfers really uh, uh, have the have the skills to take it on. So they were looking at these two to sort of four star locations and Playa Guiones, where where we're speaking from is a three and a half star location. So we were we were smack in the middle of that uh, range. Mm-hmm. But then they took so that's how they identified the spots and then how they identified the influence of the wave on those spot on the on the economy those spillover effects because this is a it's a natural resource there's no market for waves they've tried to kind of marketize waves in some parts of the world but but so they they then took nighttime satellite images of these communities from 1992 to 2013 and looked at the growth of the illumination on a a one kilometer squared Mm -hmm. uh, analysis I think in terms of the the imagery and they saw how because obviously uh, increased illumination is a sign of extra hotels
1: and bars and and houses um and this or just uh, you know in, in certain places i guess just the arrival of electricity yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. Ge- generators and things running into the night where before they weren't
2: exactly so because uh, this because they, had, they would, would have gone to some of the most de- undeveloped economies in on the planet that had three star and four star waves so and this this technique has been used by a lot of other papers it's uh, incited in other papers so it's not new to use this technique but obviously it's the first time i've ever used in association with trying to identify the surfing multiplier
3: it's such a clever metric for it's, it's a surf great. community yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and um, and certainly the, the the paper quotes at um uh, anchor point in morocco doesn't it it's one mm-hmm. of its uh, data points that it shows you where where the illumination has increased what like 50 percent
1: if uh, yeah uh, absolutely did they have any kind of control for you know places where there weren't waves, or that you know they looked at some one-star waves and that you know to see less growth or five-star waves to see less growth? I I, I think yeah
2: they 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 um, they certainly uh, framed the, the locations uh, within the two to, to four-star range. So I, I think yeah. initially they had five thousand locations, but they brought mm-hmm. it down to like two and a half thousand locations. Oh, right. but still a lot of locations. It's, so yeah. it's,
1: you know we're, we're talking about serious. Um, statistical significance yeah. oh, to definitely. the numbers. You know, we're
2: included in that as a three and a half star uh, location, but certainly they would—they've chopped off as many sort of spurious ones and the ones that you know wouldn't maybe have too much effect on the economy.
3: But presumably, you'd have to contrast that data with, like, a, a place that surf tourism would have had no relevance, right? You'd have to look at the growth of Guiones is in comparison to a place that surf tourism wouldn't be there. So, like, maybe. One of the towns to the south of here because I mean there's going to be economic growth just by way of you know, time passing. Uh, potentially but
2: but, it, but equally there's the what's interesting uh, is, is the fact that there's an association between the growth and the location mm-hmm. and so maybe considering other locations might give us some comparison but the real comparison here was between the lower starred locations and the higher starred locations. Mm-hmm. So, how much more growth does a three-star location give uh, over a two-star? How much more growth does a four-star location give <laughs> over a two-star? And clearly, there's other factors such as stability in the in the political infrastructure, in the infrastructure yeah. and stuff, and uh, and ease of doing business. But yeah. that's the the core of this study is the comparison between the quality of the wave and the surfing multiplier. Yeah. Okay. And there's some interesting findings which will will come to. Uh, and
1: presumably, that that would be. Less likely to show up in developed, you know, the, the, uh, a surf town in the US or in Europe is unlikely to show much growth between 92 and 2013 compared to places in the developing world. But presumably what we would see is a similar trend, you know, it, as surfing became more popular. Maybe a lot of the 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 town would have seen similar growth, but you wouldn't necessarily yeah. have noticed it because there were already streetlights and things in place. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so this is the development economic economics department of Oxford. University. Yeah, their focus is on the in, uh, on the developing world. Right. Okay. Um, so they were they weren't necessarily even looking at the US and and Europe. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think
2: certainly they were looking at two and a half thousand spots. Yeah. But the, the, what they were looking for most uh, dramatically was the contribution in the developing economies. But they would have yeah. certainly, yeah, they would have seen some some effects in uh, in the UK and the US. But uh, the focus was definitely um, regarding policy making to encourage economic growth in other parts of the world. Okay, um, so there was one other source. So they had the the one for the spots, the satellite imagery for the for one way of telling growth. The other was uh, land scan uh, measures of population data, which I think is where you look at actual. You assume certain dwellings have a certain number of people right and then you look and you and you assess the change in population based on the change in the number of dwellings from satellite imagery. right so you're looking for for new building yeah new building and also the you know the movement of
0: population to those areas i'd be interested to see the data on chikama because obviously between say 92 and 2013 the, it was an industry change yeah. and whether because it was it was some kind of fish they imported there, didn't they? Well, there's an import, they, but they they, they they fished and canned and yeah. then sent out. Yeah. I wonder if there's if when it was still industry, whether the satellite images to now when it's the surfing industry, how much difference it's there was. Yeah, or whether there was a decline. Yeah. you know when it switched. Or I mean, I, I wonder if you would have seen, you know,
1: when we were down there and all the the hotel that we were at was right up on the point rather than in the center of town yeah and there were three or four other hotels i'm guessing that they're all fairly new by comparison to you know the rest of the town that was built around that fishing industry so i wonder whether you would still actually pick up on okay there's nothing ch- you know, there's no houses being demolished in town there's no houses being built in town but if we go out onto the point it's gone from one shack to yeah. three or four good-sized hotels yeah
2: I think that's kind of almost what really excites me about this paper is that, you know, traditionally in developing economies, we've seen economic growth due to, say, gold mines or exploitation of the rainforest or, you know, some sort of minerals that often foreign national corporations sort of come and take and yeah. they obviously contribute to the economy while there's the activity. But once the gold has gone and the, uh, the foreign national companies, the MNCs have gone, then the country's almost back to square one. Yeah. But what's fantastic about Uh, the waves as a resource is they're sustainable i mean no one's going to turn the wave machine off are they so uh, i think that's exciting from a from a policy making perspective fact that um, surf spots represent a real opportunity for developing countries to you know have sustainable
1: growth because of this surfing multiplier and the 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 guys have highlighted in this study that there has often been you know in terms of surf tourism there's often been the talk of exploitation of surf tourism and, and you know foreign companies coming in building the hotel all the money going back offshore so i guess that what's really interesting about this is it shows that even if that is the case you know that from what i can see from this study it would seem to show that there's enough of a trickle down effect into the local community that that even uh, i mean I, I guess you mentioned to me the other day the the four seasons you know resort out in the maldives okay, that's a foreign company and, and, you know, all the money that comes from the guests staying there is going into a foreign company, but there's enough trickle-down effect in the local community. Oh, yeah, certainly the, um, you know,
2: employs some of the Four four Seasons, those hotels employ hundreds of members of staff and I think there's quotas in the the Maldivian government has intervened to make sure there's quotas of local Mm -hmm. staff that are employed and
3: yeah, and I think I mean when you think about some place like Sultans in the Maldives, I mean, if that Four Seasons hadn't come in and provide the infrastructure and and, and made that hotel, those are you know, hundreds of jobs that just simply wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And and now you have these Maldivian surfers who who can who can watch the the events there, and now there's opportunities for them to to progress their surfing, and it just puts a whole framework in place that you know other otherwise was not possible, and it is sustainable. You know, if these waves are, are protected, then they're not going to go away. That's a it's an in- income source for the local economies that, that can last for you know forever, forever exactly. Um,
2: and so, and it was, and the numbers here. I mean, we haven't really talked to, talked about the numbers the guys found in the study, and and I think um, they came up with a figure of um, fifty billion dollars globally. Um, which, when you look at the two and a half thousand spots, it was between $18 million and $22 dollars, basically generated by the waves. And the waves that were the most successful were the uh, three- and four-star waves. Mm-hmm. And those waves that... Um, w- w- the the halo effect of those waves was a five-kilometre radius. But also, the nearest biggest town, which in our case here is Nicoya, Which also, is about an hour away. Right, ...also benefits considerably. Mm-hmm. Also, you see a, a, a lot of um, local population moving to the area for for work, for for work. Income. but the population growth tends to be more in neighboring communities because the land prices on the wave front obviously go through the roof and
1: i think price, we all, we all feel that local. in, in play again yeah. i was about to say it's exactly what we've we've seen here with uh, myself and will and, and asher have all been looking for where we're going to live next year and I, I, certainly me and will are going to be several miles inland because uh, not been really able to find anywhere in town and asher you're still you're still looking
3: oh i'm still on the hunt yeah we're one yeah. of those three and a half star waves with a bit of infrastructure very uh very seductive for tourism and it it you just it kind of prices out uh People who would locally live here, but on the other hand, you know, it, our job wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that wave. So Absolutely. I'm more than happy to live outside of the.
1: You were saying that the the real goal for, for this is you know to present to the governments of of these countries. So what, where should the investment be made? Where what does need to be brought in?
2: Well, I think there's there's um, there's two approaches. You can you can have a more interventionist approach by which you can build roads and infrastructure. Um, be it telecommunications, like, like we have here, good telecoms, but we don't really have good roads. That's something that definitely could be improved mm-hmm. here, or at an airport that's close to the three-star, three to four-star surf spots. Mm-hmm. The other approach is just to have a more what we call an economics, a supply-side policy approach, which is more about making um, uh, competition more effective and, and improving. Um, the, the environment for business. So you make it easier to start a business. You cut a lot of, you know, the, the official sort of red tape and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that then encourages entrepreneurs to come to the town, which encourages competition, which in, helps with the prices and, and also helps spread the development and helps the communities grow because you just make it a lot easier.
3: So between those two schools of thought that we talked about at the beginning, kind of the the Chicago style and the, the more Oxford style uh, school of economics, which does it fall into that, there's just enough regulation provided that it allows the free market to operate. Cause obviously if it was just free market, it would be, you know, it, there could be a catastrophe. Yeah. If there's not this regulation, you could put hotels on the beach and then might be exploited. But yeah, certain, you know, but certain. if there's just enough regulation, there it's enough that it can make businesses thrive. Yeah, that's certainly the the more uh,
2: Chicago school. That's the more uh, non-interventionist. Mm-hmm. You, you do, you just, essentially you fluff the pillows of entrepreneurs and let them decide. Because they know best and they know what the surfers want because they're likely, they are surfers. Whereas guys in government may be, uh, don't have a lot of experience in surfing. And so if they try mm-hmm. and plan the community, they won't always get the most efficient result. Um, and there's a little bit, um, in fairness to Thomas and Sam, this is a great paper, but there's, there's a little few mistakes with their the, the, the effect of the rip curl search, even in this paper. And these obviously guys are quite, quite keen surfers. Um, I don't know if you guys picked up on that. Um, the, uh, there's a really interesting part how if you have a, a world event, you can double the multiplier effectively. You can, mm-hmm. you can get as much as 3% economic growth. And they found this out from looking at the Ripkill search and all the locations it went to. But in the paper, they, they they state that Uluwatu was discovered in 1989, I think it is, or something like that. And yeah. um, So there's a little <laughs> bit of inaccuracy with the discoveries. But certainly, post-world event, it's incredible how... The economy grows, so mm-hmm. and so they
1: they even saw a growth in Uluwatu post the CT event. There. Yeah, the search. Yeah, yeah. wow, Cause Uluwatu. Cause, yeah. I mean, it was pretty blown up even at that point. Yeah. In time. And they see like a real step up. So you know, when when you
2: have it, when you have a world event, it's a, the and this is where we come back to the Olympics. When you have a world, you know, an event where the world is watching, that puts your surf spot on the map. Because there's a lot of three star and four star surf spots out there, but you have a world event and suddenly it can catapult you into higher levels of growth now often the local surf community will be the ones saying don't have the event because they're worried about because yes, they're popularity. worried about their resources for themselves yeah i think we've had that seen that in an island with some surf events that were once weren't that popular but then they've become more popular since because but again because when you realize that your job might depend on it your future might depend on it then maybe you're not so Anti a, a contest coming to town.
3: I wonder what the effects would have been if the Rip Curl Search event, so Uluwatu, for example, would be a wave that would go give, be given five stars. It would be kamikaze, right? True, true. Um, I wonder, and you're saying they could get three percent economic growth on an event at, in a place that was not even the most favorable uh, for what their metrics are saying. Yep. So I wonder w- what kind of economic growth you could have been given if you know if it w- if the search event was held in a place like Selena Cruz or. Yeah. Oh, a yeah, wave that's we, very accessible to a guy sitting on his couch in Florida who wants to go on a surf trip. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And certainly, that
2: I mean, that's again we come back to the policymakers, and we we're talking about intervention as so well. On. Mm-hmm. Well, one way you might intervene is to organise a, a, a contest, and I think we can see that in Costa Rica with the with the ISA, ISA. here. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's part of you know. They've clearly, uh, you know, recognised the surfing multiplier here. Uh, uh, whether they've read this paper, I, I doubt it yet, it's only been out a few weeks, but the the influence of surfing on this economy has been considerable.
1: Do you think that this same methodology could be applied to other sports? You know, could you... I mean, I think the 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 advantages of having a ski resort is fairly well known, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with with other maybe lesser known sports you know it would appear that natural resources have a, a quantifiable value yeah mm-hmm. that, that we can apply and and these guys have found a way uh, seemingly a, a quite a good way to to reveal that i yeah. wonder if this could then be applied to other things you know whether it's uh, I don't know, paragliding in mountains oh, or, sure or, uh, or, or footpaths in forests that are used yeah. by mountain bikers
2: yeah. um you know that's that's going to have a multiplier whether or not it's as great as the surfing multiplier and what grade of footpaths has the most strongest and you know, the, the most powerful multiplier i guess it's going to be quite maybe without the wanna surfs
1: of this world i don't know if there's a wanna bike or something um, <laughs> yeah. but presumably it wanna it jog would, you yeah. know it, it makes perfect sense that it is those three and low four star spots you know the ones that we always talk when we're coaching people, and we're talking about angling takeoffs. You know, if you can paddle in, angle your takeoff, set the rail, and go down the line, you can surf about 90% of the waves in the world. And so suddenly, you know, spots like the Mentawi where you've got world-class waves, actually, you know what? That's doable. That's that's surfable. Yep. That's that's attainable.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's another surfing multiplier. The Mentawi is, you know, once tribes people and very like hadn't hadn't that much. Growth or you know standards of living were pretty poor there.
1: Healthcare and education and surfing is transforming those communities. And yeah, I and mean, there's uh, there's over 20 land camps out there, I think. And that you know there there is somewhere that as a destination, really nobody had heard about it until the 90s. Yeah, I, I think a few people until Martin not, Daly, a, a yeah. few people <laughs> knew about it, but until those videos came out in the 1990s, that you know it really was unknown. And now you've got 20 land camps and 30 exactly. boats and.
2: But there are obstacles for for, for policy makers. I mean, uh, we have issues here with water, and, and, and we've got GDP per capita of fifteen and a half, sixteen thousand here in in Costa Rica. We're a stable economy, you know, with political stability, and yet uh, infrastructure here. We don't have paved roads. We, we the water shortages sometimes. Um, we mm-hmm. we accommodate that sort of simply with backup tanks. So but in certain, the fact that you know there are water outages, the Costa Rican. Uh, infrastructure's struggling a bit with the growth in yeah. Gionas. Now, you you put that into the mentalities where, you know, where are they going to get the money from for the infrastructure? And yeah. um, But what I think this paper sort of suggests is why, rather than borrow money to build a motorway in uh, parts of Indonesia, why not borrow money from, say, the IMF or the World Bank to to help foster your surf spots mm-hmm. and help build access to those surf spots and, and help um, foreign investment come into those surf spots and you'll get the the rising living standards for your people, basically.
1: So Sam, you, you were telling me the other night when we were talking about this, about how you could apply the same criteria to a wave pool environment.
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the real you know, significant features to come from this paper is the power of of the surf multiplier and that and and that governments and policymakers can tap into that and we've just recently seen that example in in north wales with um the surf snowdonia project which has seen a decline in in the in the the traditional industries of coal mining and etc that was the in the welsh economy and so it's quite a disadvantaged region of of the uk and so the the uk government recognized i think this surfing multiplier ahead of this paper and uh, and gave four million pound grant for the building of
1: surf snowdonia to sort of to tap into this surf multiplier yeah certainly the uh, the welsh tourist board have been very big pushing surf snowdonia haven't they to the the general or when it opened they were very big at pushing it to the general public
2: and i, and I think that's also is significant in that what they developed there in, at surf snowdonia is a three-star wave i've, I've surfed it and experienced yeah. it and it is a is, is a fun walling wave and a lot of people in the in the media it's been why didn't why didn't they develop kelly slater's waves going to going to take over the world but when really Kelly's developed there a five-star essentially close to kamikaze wave yeah so really what they've done in north in north wales there is develop a wave that will have the highest multiplier so they've been pretty clever with the, as well as wanting to get capacity in that pool to make it economically viable they've also created a wave which will attract you know the maximum amount of economic growth yeah. based on this paper
1: being a three-star wave I wonder whether that, you know, a wave pool is presumably much more limited in terms of the numbers that you can put through in any one, you know, the number of surfers that can use a wave pool in any one day is obviously much more limited.
2: And that might affect the, the surfing multiplier effectively. We'll see if the Welsh model is successful. I suppose only time will tell. There's Austin coming soon as well. Yeah. Um, although there's an example of we talked earlier about, you know, supply side policies and, 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 and government intervention and non-intervention to to make things to facilitate things and there's an, a local authority that appeared to be not facilitating them. yeah, yeah so there. it's
1: an interesting crossover isn't it where you had the Welsh government that were hugely supportive of Surf Snowdonia and then it would appear the the Austin and City Board are, are not so supportive of the Enland project Did the paper itself, you know, normally there's a a conclusion at the back of the paper, but normally they talk about what further research should be done. Did did, did this have uh, some ideas for further research?
2: Um, Well, certainly, um, I think the conclusion is the excitement about the possibility for the other three-star spots Mm -hmm. across the globe, West Africa... East Africa uh, and, and other three-star spots to come. They, you know, they, they talk about in their introduction how as we get a tragedy of a commons in surfing, as surf spots get sort of maxed out by numbers, so the, the surfing quest to discover new spots um, continues. So there's going to be future plague owners is sort of rising up around the planet. So there's lots of untapped resources mm-hmm. that are sustainable
3: mm-hmm. out there on this planet and presumably the policymakers in those areas can look to other markets like what has guiones done well to foster tourism in their three and a half star you know what what can we take from this and we've got things like the 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 legislation regarding
2: building near the beach Mm -hmm. and height of buildings and protection of turtle sites and and all these things. But what I'm what I, thinking about myself about reading this paper, I, I, I would like to see, it's a great piece of work, but I'd certainly like to see it expanded. Why, why don't we build seasonality into this, you know, which three star and four star stock bots have the greatest multiplier because of their seasonality. And we live in a community here, which, well, you guys, that has a, an incredibly long surf season. So surely mm-hmm. the surfing multiplier here is greater than, say, Nuki. Yeah, uh, has Cornwall, to be. Or, uh, or somewhere like Sri Lanka, which has a shorter sort of prime time surf season. Yeah. Um, and I think it's like the, hopefully the first of many s- studies into the surfing
0: multiplier. So this week uh, we sadly lost Bernard Midget Farrelly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a surfer who sort of developed a, a pretty progressive style through the 50s, nicknamed Midget because he was five foot eight. Which I'd
3: say isn't that midget. There's no, a five it foot it ten <laughs> human being. Like, <laughs> I was about uh, to say, what kind okay. of nicknames am I going to get? Yeah.
0: We can only assume, though, he's stood with, like, Goliath of the Australian, you know, well, athletics certainly world. Uh, how tall's
1: Nat Young? He's pretty tall. He's, he's pretty yeah. huge. pretty rangy. Yeah,
0: so. exactly. So, um, midget, he grew up on sort of Sydney's northern beaches. He had an amazing style. He basically was part of a group of surfers from DY Surf Club who pretty much were the first ones to move up and down the board. They started cross stepping, they nose, uh, you know, they, they were nose riding, they were crouching down in the barrel which hadn't been seen in the 50s. Um, and he sort of based a career off this uh, off it
1: was that real start of the hot dog style it, wasn't absolutely, it? I mean yeah. the, the hot dog style we associate more with with California and America but yeah. but in terms of the Australian hot dogging, he, he really was yeah. pretty much.
0: And you know, the, Farley. Uh, on that subject, the Malibu boards—they first went over to Australia because there was a uh, because the two owners of the company went to watch the Melbourne Olympics, and then they just did a demonstration. They took a few boards with them, went to some of the beaches around there, yeah. and, s- and s- sort of uh, started selling them there. Interesting. Um, but anyway, so. Um, midget he started competing with you know just some of the surf clubs they would compete at dy point against like maruba and some of the older surf clubs that existed down that's all sydney isn't it yeah yeah exactly almost Sorry? like almost
3: like the phil edwards of australian surfing that's yeah phil start. edwards was yeah. definitely
0: midget surf style was definitely a progression of phil edwards oh, right. interesting. so midget makaaha in nine uh, in 62 mm-hmm. yeah which you know sort of the unofficial world championship yeah he time. was pretty much
3: like the first yeah. world champion
0: yeah well he was actually the first world champion because yeah. the they established the uh, the actual like championship tour I guess you yeah. should maybe call it at um, Manly Beach in 64 yeah um, so he'd been already been uh, you know winning competitions and was very well known he was kind of a, quite a big sports personality in Australia much to his distaste um asher and i were talking about it last night and midget actually dyed his hair black to get so, out of the surfing yeah, stereotype to, to try and <laughs> disguise himself but he was in like shaving adverts and things you know in, wow. in magazines so it was you know but yeah he was a really progressive surfer he he sort of competed right through to uh, even the early 70s and was still winning um, like the australian national uh, titles and competing against uh against nat young there was a bit of a rivalry between them nat young came mm-hmm. a couple of years after it was influenced by midget perhaps in terms of style and, and i was about to say they always
1: talk about nat young being sort of midgets protege yeah and, yeah and certainly certainly early on midget always beat him in contests yeah
0: well the, the the boys at dy would uh like cut the nose of their board off to reduce mm-hmm. the swing weight and they would narrow the tails they did a load of like experimentation um yeah. and so that's really the, you know the, uh, the shortboard revolution that came after uh, owes a lot to to those guys and to Midget. Through t- towards the end of the 60s, uh, Nat young became a little bit of a uh, a bigger personality. And, and you know, unfortunately, Midget was kind of looked at as as old news. Really, as, as sort yeah. of new school surfing came in, and there was a little bit of um, resentment. I think towards the industry from from Midget. He described it as uh, as soon as the 70s came, it was. Uh, adding vinegar to water, I think he said. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he was still involved in the industry. He, uh, he had Farrelly Surfboards, and, you know, they developed some super progressive boards at the time. Um, and he has a, a Surf Blanks company in Sydney. that is yeah, Australian a, Blanks. Yeah, exactly. Still a yeah. huge company that, that yeah. exists today. Um, so even though he might not have been in, in sort of the, the public spotlight, he still had a huge, um, you know, involvement in the industry.
1: Yeah, I think from what I heard, he did he you know, where Nat Young is a huge personality, you know, as as you said, midget was the sort of guy that was going to dye his hair and try and fade back yeah, into the crowd yeah, and not exactly. really be noticed. But yeah. but was you know hugely hugely confident still. I was reading a thing that he he got into hang gliding when hang gliding was still fairly new, and so he was building his own hang gliders yeah. and then going and flying. Them. You <laughs> know, a, for, from someone who's bought the equipment and is trying to run off the beach, it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty intimidating. Yeah. If I'd built it, I'm not sure if I'd be yeah. uh, be doing as much as I am. <laughs> yep. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and I think Matt Arnie, who's the editor for the Surf Simply magazine, has uh, written a full obituary. Uh, so if anyone wants to uh, have a read of that, I'll put a link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Okay, going into the what to watch section, and there have been uh, a couple of stonking edits. Yeah, has to be said. It's been a good week. Um, but before we get there, actually, I've just got one listener email, which kind of cross crosses over anyway. I got an email from uh, Ellie Mills who is part of a PR company that's working with Google and they, Google have got a project called Beyond the Map where they've, they've gone into the favelas and they've found different people with interesting stories and they've connected it all together using effectively using Google Street View and the Google Cardboard viewers where you put your phone in and, and you know you're then immersed in that environment. It's really really cool. Anyway, one of the stories she emailed me because one of the stories is a, a guy called Ricardo. The he used to be one of the guys you know they use balloons the the drug dealers in the favelas used balloons to communicate when the, the police are coming and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he used to do that and and basically tried to you know got out of of that lifestyle through surfing and he spent the last 30 years teaching kids from the favelas how to surf and he's never charged any of them any money and consequently He doesn't have a house to live in. Um, he just sleeps on the floor of the surf shop but is still taking the kids out this this lovely story, I'll post the story uh, I'll post the video in the What to Watch section but the other side is that that I'm going to put a link in um, because if any of you viewers would like to get your hands on a pair of of the Google Cardboard viewers, we have a link you guys can uh, apply and they will send you a set of viewers so that you can experience this whole project all together and I I had a little play with it this morning and it is really cool, it's a really um, you're driving around through the favelas on the back of a moped and stuff like that it's a really immersive experience mm-hmm. um any any videos caught you guys eyes over the last couple of weeks i would have to nominate the uh comfortably numb oh yeah. good choice the fact that um what I've,
2: I've i've got a background of surfing in very cold environments always like seeing a bit of cold water yeah just to it's incredible to see the uh, the guys having a go at trying to surf in like where literally the the, the ocean has these huge frozen <laughs> lumps and like uh, and, and the interplay between Mick and and Mason is is, is, is amazing is amazing it's it's funny it's it's self deprecating which you would often see from big stars and yeah. idols and mm-hmm. and um, and there's some great surfing on it yeah they they surf like an amazing
3: Arctic point break towards the uh, the end of the little clip. Through that whole clip, I was asking myself, how bad does ice ding your board? Yeah. Because Mason was slamming into some ice. <laughs> okay. And your body as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that, it's got to do some damage to the, the body as well. Yeah, very much so. The uh, the edit I'm going to have to put out is the uh, McFunning uh, ESPN. I've actually been waiting to watch that one. I'm going to put that on my what to watch yep. list. Okay. So, yeah, it, uh, ESPN uh, in the States did a, a program, uh, E60. I guess it's like a sixty-minute thing. Don't worry, listeners. That is uh, sixty minutes of US television, so it is twenty-three minutes long <laughs> as a documentary. Uh, uh, once you get rid of the commercials, but it's talking about Mick Fanning's life, how he, you know, how he got to where he is, and then obviously dealing with the shark attack last year and his return to J Bay uh, this year. And it, for me, that's what there should be more of in surfing you know that the level of storytelling uh, you know it puts a lump in your throat it makes you re- you know Mick Fanning is not your hero already watch this and he will be your hero yeah at the end of it and and I don't think Mick Fanning is unique in having these stories about him and and as a surf industry nobody's tried to excavate these stories nobody's tried to tell these stories in the way that these guys do and I just think it's so
0: powerful absolutely and yeah. I was a little bit surprised when I first put it on I watch this watched it this morning i kind of half expected it to be a little bit of sort of embellishment you know yeah like the x-factor stories kind of thing, it starts know? that way a little bit, doesn't a little it? bit, bit, bit. Of the guys talking around the room yeah, discussing yeah. whether to do the story but, but, but actually the the main piece is it, like you say it's powerful that's that's yeah. all it is it's not a sub story it's just a, a it's a story of mick and it's just incredible yeah. you know i mean what a guy yeah what yeah, a he's guy He's been through so much and yet he's achieved so much at the same time oh yeah you know? those two things to coincide, it's it's amazing. um So john john released the second part of his twelve series with Hurley. Yeah. Um, oh, that is the height of surf porn. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of surf porn. A lot of surf porn. <laughs> a lot of Hawaii. A lot of. Yeah, this was all back home
1: in Hawaii, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's was almost kind of a break because I thought it was my expectation from the last one that it was was it all going to be contest surfing, and yeah. this was very much at home, kicking back. But yeah.
0: No, it was it was amazing. Some of the footage there from the. Uh, Eddie contest oh. oh it's it's insane isn't it <laughs> yeah so. if there wasn't any doubt before in my mind i know
3: now that john john is competing in a totally different sport than i participated yeah, in. yeah. <laughs> and we are not we are not doing the same activity no. yeah
2: and just the the, the maneuvers he was performing in like huge surf was just huge sections too oh. it was just uh mind blowing.
3: I loved the edit on the or the short documentary on the nine foot and single contest in uh Canggu, Bali this year. Put on my Dais. That yeah. was a really good look at the event. Uh there's a lot of McTavish talking. Bob McTavish is a guy that when he talks it's really good to listen. He's got a lot of interesting insight and uh yeah, it was a really cool look at the event.
1: Yeah, I th- I thought what was interesting with that was, you know, McTavish talking about how you know, these guys are going out and surfing boards that you know weren't really designed for surfing waves no like that. and, 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 and the, the level off. of skill that those guys have is unbelievable so how uh, how intimidated are you that you're going to be out there for the the next oh,
3: single i'm I'm, uh, I'm very jazzed to go surf with those guys <laughs> yeah i'm gonna uh yeah I'll, I'll be in one of their events in october in, in, in bali it just coincided that i could be over for the event
1: I'm, i can't wait i'm like a, a 10 out of 10 on the excited scale very exciting Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is sadly all we've got time for this episode. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any feedback or any comments, then please do email us at podcast at surfsimply.com. But for now, from myself, it's goodbye.
0: And goodbye from Will. See you in two weeks. And goodbye from me. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.